I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. ES Audio. This podcast is brought to you in partnership with Fuller's London Pride, an outstanding amber ale and the official beer of Premiership Rugby. And don't forget, you can now watch the full extended video podcast of today's show at londonpridebeer.co.uk. Support with pride and please drink responsibly. Lawrence Delalio's Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride, the official beer of Premiership Rugby. Hello, I'm Lawrence Delalio. Welcome to my rugby podcast. I'm delighted to have two very special guests with me this week. Later on, we'll be joined by the captain of Harlequin's women's team and former England centre, Rachel Burford, as we take a look at all the action from the opening weekend of the Women's Six Nations. But first, I'm joined by a great friend and a great man. He's a man who played rugby for Leicester Tigers, for England, and of course, the British and Irish Lions. And he went on to become England's first full-time professional head coach in 1997. And the rest, of course, is history. It is Sir Clive Woodward. Hello, Clive. Thanks for joining the podcast. Really appreciate your time. Uh, How are you, first of all? I'm great. Thanks, Lawrence. And um, really good to be on. Thank you. My pleasure. There's lots to talk about. And um, I don't want to make it a sort of an an Eddie Jones witch hunt, because that's certainly not what it is. But we will ask and answer the honest questions and and hopefully try and put some perspective and balance on a lot of the discussion points that have been raging since the end of the Six Nations. The conversation around Eddie Jones and England's lack of performance certainly goes on and on. I read your piece in the Daily Mail. It was fairly honest and brutal assessment of some of the problems that exist. But before we get on to talk about EJ, I want to sort of talk about the whole kind of process and structure, really, in the RFU, because I don't think this is an appointment that the RFU have ever really got right since you stepped away, resigned, whatever you did in 2004. You know, if we look at the appointments they've made, we've had Andy Robinson, who was, you know, under your coaching team. We then had Brian Ashton. We obviously had Martin Johnson, which is one of the most criminal things to appoint one of the best guys in rugby and then not to surround him with people who actually know what they're doing. And we've obviously had Stuart Lancaster. And in that period, I think England won one Six Nations title in 12 years, a very similar run to the one that France have had. So before they appointed Eddie, I'm not sure that this process has ever been run very well indeed. And do you think that's a fair assessment? Do you think the structure of how England appoint their coaches needs a complete review? Yeah, first of all, I had to smile when Eddie Jones is now called EJ. You've got to be pretty good if you've now got initials, everyone knows who you are. So EJ, I mean, I'm CW then. Uh, listen, I've lots to say about it. And to me, it's fairly straightforward. And I will try and be really careful what I say because you know, we're not trying to bash anybody here, but I just think you've got to come back to, you know, I don't blame Eddie Jones or I don't blame Stuart Lancaster or anyone of the guys you met. It, it's the people who put them in there 
mean, the actual recruitment process for putting in all those coaches, fundamentally, it's done by the chief executive. And the chief executive, and they're probably the, the two main figures in those years, are Ian Ritchie and Bill Sweeney, both really good guys. Be very, very clear about that. But my, my issue with them is they're business people. You know, there's nothing wrong with being a business person, but their knowledge of rugby is really small. But they seem to get these positions, and it's almost like a kid in a candy store. They suddenly feel now they, they're responsible for appointing the England coach, which they are. And my advice to, to both of them, and I had the conversation with both of them, and you can imagine it probably didn't go too well, was if I was in your seat, if I was a chief executive of RFU, I would appoint a director of rugby who would take all this responsibility off me. The director of rugby who is qualified to talk about the England coaching position, how you go about selecting it, and also your job as director of rugby is to recommend to me and the board who that should be. You go away and do the actual process. And it just seems to me we keep, I mean, just to give an example, I don't think I've told many people this. I applied for the England coaching job, reapplied to, to go back when they appointed Stuart Lancaster. And that was Ian Ritchie was the, the chief executive. I didn't apply for the job. I got headhunted by, I can't remember the headhunter, but he said, you know, Stuart Lancaster is going to be in it and Nick Mallett's going to be in it. And I, I'm thinking, well, first of all, I, I don't want a non-English coach. I like Nick Mallett hugely. I thought Stuart Lancaster wouldn't get it because he's just never coached at any level. So I should get this job. So next thing I'm in a room with a bunch of people headed up by Ian Ritchie. And basically he just brought in a few rugby guys. It was ridiculous. And then I got a call afterwards from the head to basically saying, well, you know, because you categorically said you wouldn't report into a director of rugby you're not getting the job and it's going to Stuart Langster, which is, and, and so it's not Stuart Langster's fault. I mean, Stuart Langster fundamentally, but he didn't get us out of the group. I mean, he didn't get home World Cup, we don't get out of the group. So it's the appointment. And, and to me, you have to create a director of rugby position. And that person could be the CEO, like Laporte is like that position. You could have that skill set, but neither Bill Sweeney or Ian Ritchie had the skill set to actually make the right decision on who should be the England next coach. You can have all the advice you want, but unless you're surrounded people who've actually got that kind of skill set, the chance they're going to make the wrong decisions. They made them the best one in the world, but I would like a director of rugby to be totally responsible for that. If the CEO hasn't got the skill set, then the director of rugby makes those positions and it hasn't got to be English. I've heard today it's going to be an England next coach. I think that's hugely wrong. Should be the best coach on the planet. Yeah, I, th I think I agree with that. Ian McGeekin came out and said that England should appoint the best coach you know, great if he's English, but don't worry if he's not. Although there is a stat and it's sort of slightly warped by the fact that very few Southern Hemisphere teams will have a, a non-national coaching their team. But uh, no team has won the World Cup being coached by a coach from another country. So let's say that, that Lawrence, is if I was the director of rugby, I would say I'm going to appoint the best coach on the planet. Deep down, I know there's a good chance that's a good person going to be English because I think we've got the right talent to be that. I'm not going to appoint an English coach and then say to say everyone, well, you only you got the job because you're English. If we can get an English coach, fantastic. But I wouldn't be saying only one person makes that decision should be the director of rugby. I report to the board, chief executive, Sweeney, Ian Ritchie. And that's what Barron did so well. Francis Barron, out of all the, the chief executives, has been the best in my time. He kept away from the rugby really cleverly. He ran the business. He was tough on me. You know, we had our moments, but he was fantastic. But he didn't get involved in the rugby. He allowed me to do my job. And I think that's where it starts and ends. And it probably goes across most sports. You get this chief executive role. Suddenly, it's almost like having a fan in charge of the team. And you're thinking, you know, how can a fan pick the England rugby coach? And that's where I think they keep getting it wrong. And even now, with the announcement there about it's going to be English, I think that's wrong. 
Well, they made a couple of announcements. They put themselves in a corner now where if someone came forward who was the best qualified person for the job, they've kind of boxed themselves into a corner now because they've said it's got to be English. So I think that's wrong. They've also said that they're going to appoint that person before the World Cup so that that person can spend some time being with Eddie Jones, which again, I think is boxing themselves into a corner because if that doesn't happen now, then you're almost holding a gun to your own head. Also, Lawrence, just sorry to drop, but... Yeah, England can win the next World Cup. Be very, very clear. They're just going through this patch at the moment and they've handled the kind of the poor record really badly. I'm the last person saying Eddie Jones should go. Eddie Jones can win the next World Cup. So you win the next World Cup, he'll only be 64, 65. You may want to stay on. So why are you going to sack a guy who's won, won the World Cup or have him replaced beforehand? Because that leaves a huge amount of pressure. They've just assumed certain things. And again, I think they've just got it wrong. I mean, Jones is fundamentally, he's had a bad couple of seasons with the Six Nations. They've handled that bad results really, really badly, allowing the media, who we both work in, to you know, have their say. And they've made some really strange statements about you know, making sound progress. So they're going to cop some feedback, as they call it. We've all done it. So we've all been in that position. But to suddenly say the church is going to change. Also, if you're in that team, you go, well, actually, after this World Cup, this guy's not going to be anyway. I think it's a really wrong thing to do from a whole management point of view and a coaching point of view. And you know, if you want to coach England, you'll be available. And if you don't, we don't, don't apply for the job. I just think there's a there's been a succession of appointments and I guess Martin Johnson's is probably the most obvious one to talk about where you've got a guy who's just one of the most wonderful human beings he's one of the greatest ever players but he clearly never coached a team before and I remember him saying to me he phoned me up and he said well, you know what do you think and I said well have you ever coached before he said no I said well you know you Go and coach your daughter's team down at home on a Sunday. And just have, just get, you know, if you haven't coached before, then you need to get a feel for one whether you like it. And I think his view was that he wasn't sure whether he'd ever be asked to do the job again if he didn't accept it. And I get that, but. I said, you have to make sure that you surround yourself with the right people. And you've got to go and persuade the people that you want, whether they're in a job or not, that they should join you on your journey. And I don't think he necessarily got the support from anyone within the RFU to be able to go and make that happen because you can't just do it on your own. And I think it's just been a terrible tragedy because he's clearly been burnt and quite wounded by that experience. I think he's got an enormous amount to give the game in terms of his intellectual property, but no one helped him who had international rugby experience. And I think... You know, and we'll, and we'll move this forward to Eddie Jones as well. Eddie Jones is a very capable coach, as we know. He's he's had success, you know, in a lot of places. But inevitably, he doesn't get every decision right. And I think he probably needs a bit of help and a bit of counsel from not people he wants to surround himself with, but people who might challenge and question whether it's a really good idea, for instance, to bring a load of players into an England squad who have got no chance of playing for England. He is going to stay until the World Cup. And fundamentally, you know, he's been successful. He's won three Six Nations titles. He's got us to a World Cup final. And obviously, we know what happened there. But in the last couple of years, I think he started to make some decisions. And his press conferences are, I mean, they're a car crash. I mean, you know, he offends people that you're playing against. I mean, he used to be quite funny in press conferences, Eddie Jones. He used to be quite sparky, but I don't know where the comms plan is there. But I've never felt as an England supporter so disconnected from the England team as I feel right now. And I just want to know who is going to step in and actually challenge and ask those questions. This is what I'm saying, Lawrence, is, I mean, first of all, Jono, I had the same conversation. He called me and I just said to him, look, my professional advice is don't do it. Go and coach Leicester. Go and spend four or five years at Leicester. You will walk into England job if you're successful at Leicester. You don't know whether you actually like this job yet. You've got to kind of learn your trade. But you know, again, I don't blame Jono for people at Twickenham gave him the job. Looking back now, it's clearly the wrong decision because there's so many things he had to actually learn. I'd like to know the director of rugby in the RFU who made that decision because then you hold them accountable. Nobody knows. Who did appoint Martin Johnson? If those people should put their hands up, actually, that was me. 
I did that because that would be quite interesting for the public to know who made those appointments. And the same with, with Eddie now, just when he needs help, and the director of rugby isn't there to say exactly what Eddie Jones wants to hear. There's nobody I can see at Twickenham, I mean nobody, who can go to Eddie on a one-on-one and sit down and go, come on, this, this isn't right, this isn't working, question things in a real professional manner. And you just look at his coaching team. Yeah, that's where I think we, you know, we've got some amazing players. England got the players who can win the World Cup. And I think we have the coaching team in this country. But I, I just look at them and I compare it with the, the French team, the Irish team. And you go, we're just behind on, on the coaching side. And it's just, just kind of drifting. And then when you start to actually have people in the RFU say, well, there's been some solid progress, you, you're going to cop it. You know, I, I don't like seeing some of the stuff that has been leveled at Jones. And I've had to be totally honest. I just, I think what he's done is really, I don't get it. And I'd love to be sitting down in one-on-one as director of rugby and going, why, why, why? And then I can back it up in the media. So it's not just him. It's all him at the moment. And it's too much because quite simply, there's no one at Twitter who can sit down with the media and actually explain what's going on. And just leave yourself quite exposed, you know. And then they come out, and the next thing you get is going to be English. Well, why are we even talking about that? Our mantra, and you remember this, Lawrence, and you just learn this. The whole of coaching England is about the next game. The next game is everything. Just everybody approach it. This is my last game for England as a player or a coach. It is the last game. No one talks about World Cups ever until the next game is the World Cup final. To me, if I'm advising Bill Sweeney on direct rugby coach, the only thing that matters is our next game against Australia in a few months' time. And if anyone talks about anything else, that they're out. They're out. And we're going, to, we're going to win that first game. Because we lose to Australia next game. It really is going to kick off. I can't disagree with a lot of that. I mean, just moving on to some of the things that are happening within the England side at the moment. You were the head of a very successful and talented coaching group that, you know, I mean, you started the journey in 97. We won the World Cup six years later. So, you know, there was a journey. The first two years, we made a lot of mistakes and we got bombed out of that 99 World Cup. I remember you handing my dad the credit card and saying, Vincent, you know, don't hold back. Don't spare the horses. You know, this could be the last one. And I think my dad duly obliged and <laughs> ordered um, ordered a few bottles of Cheval Blanc. I said, Dad, Magnums, Magnums. He, he said, it's, you know, it's he, did, he did, Lawrence. He and, did. Uh, but obviously, uh, Fran Cotton stepped in, uh, a, a rugby man, as you mentioned. And, you know, you and everyone was given an extension of your contract and, and duly delivered. I mean, uh, the, the coaching team grew and grew. You had guys like Phil Larder, Dave Allred, you know, Andy Robinson, Phil Keith wrote Dave Redding, real experts in their field and all English, actually just by coincidence, but just just so we're clear. I just I look at the current coaching setup and I interviewed Eddie Jones just when he was on that run of 17 games when he first took over. And I said to him, you know, you're obviously going really well. I just want to look back at your career. When you coached Australia, you took over from Rob McQueen and you won the Bledisloe Cup back. You know, you got Australia to a World Cup final. And I said, and you lost to our team by a drop goal in extra time, admittedly. But I said, then things started to go wrong. Why did things go wrong? And Eddie's direct response, an honest response, was I stayed too long. I won't make that same mistake again. And here we are, six years into his tenure. And it's almost like history is sort of repeating itself because he got to a World Cup final and lost again. And things, you've got to admit, have started to unravel a little bit. If you have a high turnover of staff, coaching staff, and I think I've lost count how many attack coaches England have had, I can't possibly understand how the message can be a consistent one within the camp. I think there's a real issue there with people coming in and out all the time. Now I was there seven stroke eight, eight years, Lawrence, and I just built that coaching team. And we only made one major change, and that was John Mitchell. John Mitchell had to go back for family reasons to New Zealand. I like Mitchell, he's been really successful. And we brought in Andy Robinson. Outside of that, we just built. No one changed. You know, those were really hand-picked. And you know, they're not yes-men. I would back that team today against any coaching team, any coach team, including Galtier's team, especially the England team. We were way ahead, and I think we were then. We still are now, all those... 
20 years later in terms of the knowledge of the team and how they operate. Back to being English, I didn't pick them because they're English. I picked them because I thought they were best. But it makes a massive difference. So hopefully you saw that firsthand. I think the older we get, the more everyone will realize how good that coaching team actually was. But also just one of the current points in terms of all the EJ, I call them, EJ stuff. You know, about these people going in, checking up on him. I just think that's the elephant in the room. It just kind of hit me the other day when I read that. Hang on, hang on a sec. If Francis Barron had called me up and said, you just lost a couple of games, we're going to send these people in to check up on what you're doing. I'd just say, just forget it. You either hire me or fire me. Do not think you're going to send somebody in to check on what I'm doing. I just wouldn't do it. And be fair, just so we're clear on Eddie Jones. When Eddie Jones arrived, I was his biggest cheerleader. I was leading the fan club and it's been well documented. I fell out with Eddie, I'm going to say fell out with him, that final week of the World Cup final, where I could just see there was distractions everywhere and I didn't like what I saw. Then I saw the World Cup final. Then I kind of I got really annoyed because English should have won that. And you, know, you and me, we're massive on this. It's in our DNA. English should have won that World Cup final. They lost it. So they got distracted. Then you see what happened in the next couple of years. You start to actually go, whoa, he's lost the mojo here. He's lost what he was good at. And then you've you got to say, as you see it, you've got to start criticising. But, you know, any top coach, they wouldn't, I wouldn't allow anyone to come in. They start to see what I'm doing. You want the job too much. I think it's just another massive mistake the RFU made. Because, again, no director of rugby who's totally accountable for the England team, the England, England coach. And I think that's what they're badly missing. My approach to being in the media, because, you know, you want to praise people when they do well. And ultimately, you have to ask the, the honest questions when things aren't going well. And I've always sort of taken this view that and we used to have it with the players when they wrote newspaper articles. You know, you can't write anything or say anything that you're not prepared to say to someone's face. And if you're prepared to do that, and look, I would question Eddie Jones on quite a lot of things, really. And I'm just curious from a selection perspective, the England attack job should be one of the most coveted jobs in world rugby, right? It's one of the, the best jobs you can possibly have. Now, I know Martin Gleeson. I like him a lot. I just can't understand how a guy who's been in rugby union less than a year, if not maybe two years, three years, who is still learning his craft at Wasps under Lee Blackett, how he can be given one of the best jobs in the world straight away, having not really had much experience in the game. Now, there's no way Martin Gleeson is going to turn that down. You know, he's, they trebled his salary, the RFU, and suddenly he's working in an England environment. But you, you've got to question the process when the job is given to him. And the second point I, I would put to you, and I'd put this to Eddie Jones, the two things you need to build a winning culture, in my opinion, is trust and consistency. You have to trust people and you have to be consistent with the message you tell them. I think also, Lawrence, I mean, that trust comes from, I mean, we're in an incredible win-loss record. I mean, I see all these stats. The only stat I look at is between World Cups. And if you compare what we did compared to what Eddie's doing now, I think that brings to light what, what you're doing. So between World Cups, I had about a year, you know, a year, maybe two years to actually learn all about what was going on. But between losing to the All Blacks in the World Cup in 1999 and then winning it in 2003, we actually played 47 games and lost five. So our win-loss percent was 90%, 90%. Jones, to me, is in the same position. After 2019, he'd had four years to prepare, not two. Now he's down to 70%. So there's something going wrong. He's way behind the eight ball in terms of what's going on. That comes down to, to answer your point, your consistency in selection. Selection is the biggest skill in this job, I promise you. It's the number one thing, and it's not easy. It's okay, everyone's saying, well, oh, that's obvious, you pick the team. It's not obvious because you're, you're trying to find a team, not just to play Saturday, but you're trying to build this team. Can this team win a World Cup? When I was doing this, my mindset was always, it's okay playing at Twickenham. If I've got to go and win in Johannesburg, if I've got to go and win in Brisbane, if I've got to go and win in Auckland, which players do you want? You've got to find these tough, tough players who are really, really skillful, but mentally, are they the right player? And we spend a lot of time on that. And there's just there's too big a turnover. We've all got our views on selection, but, you know, it starts with selection. That's the number one thing. Then it starts with your 
coaching team. Oh, we can bring in world-class coaches. Dave Allred. I mean, you know, he's hard work, but he was the best by miles. Why is he not involved? And fundamentally, I think, you know, Eddie's a good coach, but he may, he may be like an Andy Robertson. He may be the guy to be a great coach. Is he the guy who can make the big calls on selection and create the culture? And, and so far since the World Cup, it's, it's kind of just not happened for him. And, you know, we're trying to back him in many ways. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Just on selection, Clive, I always think the England squad should be quite aspirational. I don't understand why you're bringing in players who are not going to be capped. You know, we've picked 180 players, Eddie, for England, and 100 of them are up, remain uncapped. And, and bringing players into an England squad is, is a big step. You know, especially if they're never going to play for England straight away. And sometimes that works well and guys get leave. And sometimes it works against that player. Take a Jacob Bumanga, for instance, you know, brought in to the England squad. And, and he sort of left the England squad, you know, quite understandably thinking he's the bee's knees. And he's never quite been the same player for Wasps ever since then. So I don't get that in my mind at all. I think the England squad should be a very special place and only invited in there if you're good enough to play that week. You go back to my point, selection is everything. But really, just need someone who can actually get down and go, why do you pick, you know, this guy on the wing, this guy at fullback? I mean, what happened to Max Malins? I thought he's a superstar player, Malins, and he's just suddenly gone. And there's no reason why he should be gone. He's like, he's another one just gone. You've got to know your team. You've got to keep with that selection. And I think what happens also, you know, I lived in Australia for five years. I mean, I actually, I don't know, I actually played against Eddie Jones. And he was this tough kid from Ramwick. And he was a tough kid. You can remember him now. And he's coming over to Manly, which is kind of the posh part of town and playing against all that stuff. I just think, you know, his, his old background, he, he likes big, tough players. He likes size. And I don't think that's ever changed. Deep down, he comes back to size. And that's why I think we have Marrow playing six and Laws. Yeah. I don't get that because I think Laws has been amazing this season. He should be a starting second row along with Marrow Matoje. And you just kind of build from there, but just keep it, keep it. Keep. Once you've got those players, don't change them. Once I know you're playing number eight, Lawrence, you're playing number eight, you just keep these going. And it's only if you're injured or have a real catastrophic loss of form, you, you can't do it. Our team, the country could have named that team two or three years out from the World Cup, give us like one or two positions. And then it's up to me to make the big calls. I had to make massive calls, as you know, in the front row. You know, to go with kind of uh, Woodman and Vickery and sort of have on the bench, you know, Jason and Roundtree. These are massive calls, but no one argued with them because everyone's in the, in the squad. We just don't know the starting team. And I, I think it's the number one skill of any any top coach. And when you lose games, at least it leaves you totally exposed. And I passionately don't believe in the starters finishes because I think that's confused everyone as well. It's really caused confusion. 
in the players and you say, well, I'm not in the starting, but I'm a finisher, so I'm just as good as these guys. You've got to know I'm in the team or not in the team. But I come back to, I picked every team based on Saturday will be my last game. Every game, this is my last game in charge, so I'm going to win this game. And that's what I think players want. So you're picking your best team, your best team. England isn't a development team. It's not there to develop players. You're there to win on Saturday. Look, I want to ask you some questions from some of our listeners because there's some really fascinating questions. But before we do that, I want to bring in Rachel Burford, who's been waiting very patiently. Rachel, um, thanks for coming in. Really, really appreciate it. The women's game is also taking centre stage at the weekend with the opening round of, of Six Nations games. And I'm delighted that you've come here to join us. You were a bit of a trailblazer for women's rugby, 84 caps for England. You played in four World Cups, which is incredible. Also lifting the trophy in 2014. Rachel, you were up in Edinburgh. You watched the game. England obviously got off to a fantastic start in the tournament. They won quite comfortably. Was it nine tries to one in the end? Um, I felt sorry for Scotland, but they were very brave. They, they didn't give up. I think that takes the winning run to 19 games now for England. Give us your impressions of the opening round of, of, of Six Nations women's rugby. Yeah, it's great to be here. So thanks for having me on. I think the opening round, we probably saw all the teams that you expect to win, win this weekend. And I think England got off to a really good start the scoreline I think flatters him a little bit I think there's a lot that they'll be thinking we didn't quite get into their strides really it was quite a stop-starty game and I think they'll be disappointed that they couldn't string for more than kind of three or four phases together at times but the place in the area that they were absolutely brilliant was in the opposition's 22 so every time they entered into there they came away with points so that will be really pleasing the set piece was really good but I think overall they probably expected a bit more from themselves and they were quite lateral yeah and I just think we're considering the talent that they have and the pack that they had it could have been more on the scoreboards for sure you obviously have been a huge part of that Red Roses setup, and I don't think the result or the scoreline was necessarily a great surprise. You know, this is England have got some amazing players right across their squad. What, what is it that's made that happen? Because for those of you who don't know, women's rugby players, and you know, they are professional, but they're not paid anything like what they should be paid. What is it that's made this team, this group of people, so successful? Is it is it that legacy that they're building on what you guys started, or, or what do you think it is? Well, I think a lot of what's being underpinned at the moment is the domestic league, you know, albeit not being a paid league, but a very semi-professional setup in terms of facilities, coaching, and then the level of games that are played week in, week out. You know, arguably some of those players will say that they've played in harder domestic games than the Scotland game at the weekend. So that's a massive factor to it. Naturally, being professional allows you to completely dedicate your time to play full-time and to be able to rest and recover. You know, so those two things hand in hand. But, you know, as you mentioned about coaching, the England setup is really well-resourced. The time that they had together, the time that the coaches being full-time, three of them allows them to get around their players all year round at the domestic league as well. And they're blessed with some really, really good, talented players that have had more opportunities growing up to then kind of step into the international scene and it not be unfamiliar because of the domestic league. This is such a highly competitive environment that when they go into the international scene, it, of course, it's going to be a step up. But actually, they're familiar with a lot of stuff. So I think it's an element of a couple of things, but definitely really well resourced. The fact that they're professional and the domestic league that underpins it. And obviously, that some standout players for our listeners who don't necessarily know. Obviously, Marley Packer scored a hat trick at the weekend and and was the sort of star of the match. Um, obviously, we know about Abigail Dow. I saw her try. That was amazing. Great to see Emily Scarrett back. I mean, obviously, England players, but also maybe across the Six Nations. Who are the sort of stars for us to look out for? I think we've got a number of young 
young talent coming through as well. So Maud Muir, who's a young wasp prop, you'll be happy to hear. She's broken into the fold this season and she's just been outstanding. You know, she's only 19, I think, and she's playing beyond her years, but still got so much to grow. There's been some new finds also within Italian side. I literally have never seen her and saw her play yesterday. And was like, bloody hell, where's she been hiding for Italy? Um, she's the number 12 for them. Um but a player that people need to watch out for is Laurie Sansus for, for France. She's like a DuPont. You know, she is a game changer for them. Everything is run through her. She only played 20 minutes at the weekend, but completely changed how France finished the game. So there's a couple of players just to kind of look out for, it, especially Ward Muir being a young player in that side. And the, um, I'm pretty sure that there was a record crowd up in Edinburgh. Was it over 4,000, 5,000? I mean, I think that's great to see. Um, I know that the fans are desperate to get behind the Red Roses when they play at home as well. I think the, the women's game is finally getting that kind of deserved progress in terms of media coverage. What more would you like to see done to really further enhance the women's game? Well, I think from an English point of view, we're in a really good place. Our domestic league's good, going really well international contracts of course could they be paid more could there be bonuses incentivizes those kind of things yes I believe so but I think in order really for the game to grow and in order for England women's game to be able to grow we need everybody else to catch up there's no point having two or three unions that are really invested and behind their women's teams because that doesn't bring in you know excitement jeopardy like it's obvious who may win it's too predictable and I think unless other unions come up in the same way that England, France, New Zealand, now we're seeing Wales do the same, unless we see that more across the board, we're going to have a very predictable three or four teams in the running for everything. And I think that's probably such a broad thing for me to say. But until we have other unions catching up, the top can't continue to elevate because commercially sponsors, TV broadcast, when they know it's a two horse race, there's not much excitement around that. And Clive, what's your impression of the way that the Red Roses have developed and grown? The question I'd like to ask Rachel. Hi, Rachel. Well done and everything you've done in your rugby career. How is it going on the coaching side for, for women? You know, obviously, I'm just interested in these club sides. It is a real pathway for a female coach coming in and going to the top because it just seems to be dominated by, by male in these coaching positions. Yeah, it's, it's a really good question. And hello to you too. It's something that World Rugby have got quite a few initiatives to try and help accelerate women in high performance and coaching being one of them and administration and leadership. One of the difficulty things is, I would say, is like there's a lot of us who you come to your end of your career and then you might step into coaching. But we've not had any kind of opportunities to coach whilst you're training and playing because it's still amateur so it's the evenings it's the weekends where you don't get the opportunity to then go and coach so to then say let's example for me to then maybe go into a role like that I'm going to need some years experience actually coaching on the ground running a program etc so then it takes a little bit longer for women to get into those pathways but I certainly think there's an area where clubs could invest in some players that they may see coming through female players coming through to actually get that pathway going because at the moment there's very few that have those opportunities and those jobs there's not many of those head coach role jobs available but I'd say in our Allianz Premier 15 we've actually been quite surprised and fortunate we've had a number of female coaches be at the top you know Joe Yap at Worcester Giselle Maver at Wasps Kim Oliver former international used to coach at Bristol so there are some opportunities but we don't have like conveyor belt or a number of players or you know not necessarily just players but people outside the game that want to be involved that's an area of pathway because 
it's certainly working in our domestic game where we've got more female coaches involved. But when you look across the international, there's only one female coach, head coach in France. So that's an area that we need to see for going from a domestic into the international. Rachel, really appreciate your time on that, on the Women's Six Nations. We'll obviously be keeping right across the Red Roses throughout the tournament. Uh, I want to put some questions to Clive, particularly on the England team. But before we do that, we have something called Outstanding. Outstanding with Fuller's London Pride. I'll go to you first, Rachel, just to pick out an outstanding player from the weekend. I mentioned her earlier, Sansus from France. I just think the impact that she had in 20 minutes on the game, four line breaks, made 74 metres, five tackles, you know, to be that influential in, in 20 minutes, I would say that she was outstanding. And, and I, I would say her again so people are looking out for her. Brilliant. That's a very good choice. I was at Saracen's Bristol Showdown, which saw the return of of Owen Farrell, very welcome return after four months out injured, even though the press seemed to jump straight down his throat for a, um, a pretty um, insignificant no-arms tackle, quite passive tackle, but that's what happens when you're Owen Farrell, I guess. But my outstanding player really is a is more of a mark of respect, uh, goes to Jamie George, who played his 250th game for Saracens at the weekend. In the modern professional era where players are incentivized to move elsewhere, I think to see a one-club man, I think he's been at Saracens since the age of eight, and he's a bit of a throwback um, really to what rugby players used to be but also has sort of become very very professional as well he's won everything in the game and he's 31 years of age he's obviously had a year in the championship as well so he's even got that in his CV and I just thought it was great to see him run out 250th he's well loved by the opposition he's well loved by his own teammates and fans and I think he's my outstanding player of the weekend uh, Clive, um, I know you're right across club rugby these days. You would have even had it on tuned in on Mother's Day. So uh, who's your outstanding... Uh... I need to see you, Lawrence. You know <laughs> No, 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 no. You don't need to see me. No, uh, to me, you, you mentioned him. It's just, I'm a massive fan of Owen Farrell. To see him playing yesterday again, what he brings to the team. But, you know, I'm pretty sure Eddie's going to play him at 12. And, and I'm just saying it's, it's a big call between him and him and Smith. But that's a great rivalry now because they're very, very different. But just watching him come back and play, he's just this tough, tough guy. And you've got, you've got an amazing lead, amazing captain. To me, he's 10 or nothing. I just don't think you can go to the next stage in England with him playing inside centre, outside Smith. You've got to go to Fowler or Smith, one on the bench, one starting. But I thought he was fantastic. Clive, I want to throw some questions at you because we haven't got long now and appreciate both of your time. We've got our listeners, Kirsty B. Good question, this. What changes do you think England could implement to be in with a chance of winning or even getting past the group stage in 2023? Now, Eddie's there. He's going to be there for the next couple of years. What can England implement in two years or 18 months to give us the best possible shot? Yeah, first of all, you know, he should be there. Be very clear. What I think what you've been saying and I've been saying about Jones is I just think he needs some help. Uh, we're no one saying fire him, but we are we are questioning big time some of the things he's doing. Even the kicking game, which he seems to be pretty big on, his kicking game seems to me his strategy is to box kick. I can never understand this because you're not kicking the ball very far away. You're giving the opposition you know 50-50 go at the ball. Why would you do that? And also, you know, we haven't got a kicking coach in our squad, as far as I know, unless there's someone I don't know about. I think we just box kick far too much and. I promise you for those listeners, and the game hasn't changed. It's funny how people say to me, Lawrence, well, it's changed since you... It hasn't changed since I played, which was when the TVs were seriously in black and white. I mean, it was a long time ago, but the game hasn't changed. Why do you want to kick the ball away unless you're going right downtown? So that'd be the first thing. To the speed of the ball, it's got to be improved. And I'm not, you know, I'm not a big fan of less than three seconds or all this. I can see the speed of the ball, but the time the first guy gets there, hasn't got to be number nine. The first guy gets moves the ball one pass. Can we really get some development around that? 
And the third thing, just the continuity selection. I just wish now, 18 months out, I could write down 15 names in. There's the England 15 that's going to play the opening World Cup game in 18 months' time. And if there's a change to it, it should be headline news going, wow, why has he done that? We haven't a clue who the starting 15 is. And that's a real worry. And also, the last thing I'd say, that World Cup in 2019 was okay. We're all there. I enjoyed it. The World Cup in France in a couple of years' time, the quality of the team is going to go up. It's going to be the best quality teams ever, way above 2019. So we need to be, you know, smell the coffee now. We've got to do some real radical things here. And I think James is the right guy to coach the team. We just need some flipping help. And all I want to win is that next game against Australia. Nothing else. Don't talk about anything else about England coaches, New England, bloody starters, finishers, you name it. Just get your starting 15 out there and play the game and just get back to fundamentals of coaching a rugby team. Clive, is there anyone outside of the current setup playing-wise that, that you'd like to sort of see fast-tracked in the next 18 months? Is there anyone that's been left out that you'd like to see in? Manu at his best, obviously, in the team. But we can't. you need a backup. Man. We need a you know, Manu times two. Two things I think would have happened if I'd been in charge for the last few years. We would have had a couple of guys from Rugby League come over. I'd have actually gone out and made that happen. So I'd have found somebody to come and give it a go with no guarantees, but you, we could have worked with the clubs to get a couple of players in. I quite like Lozowski from Saracens. I think he's really underrated, but just he doesn't look physically big. Um, I think he's a really top player. And I think if you were definitely playing Farrell at 10, Lozowski could definitely play there. And I just think Slade's 13. You can't play international rugby out of position at the top level. The higher up you go, the more World Cup finals, World Cup semi-finals, you've got to be comfortable in your own skin where you're actually playing. And if you are going to change people's you've got to give them a long run at this. You're going to give them a whole series of games and not just stick someone on the wing or move from fullback. I thought the experiment from you, Stuart is obviously a great, great player, but he should be playing fullback. But no one knows, no one's got a clue who's going to play at Australia at 9, 10, 12, 13, which is pretty key. And we just don't, just don't know who's going to play there. Well, listen, I, we could go on for hours and I, I appreciate that there's probably a load of questions that I haven't asked and we would love to discuss and debate. But um, I think we're all in agreement that Eddie Jones is going to take England forward. He just needs a little bit of help, maybe on selection and, uh, and one or two other little key areas. Um, maybe media liaison would be another one. But listen, thank you to you both. That's all for this episode. I want to say an enormous thank you to Sir Clive Woodward and to Rachel Burford for being my special guests. I hope you've enjoyed listening. And if you have, give us a like, leave a review and share this episode with your friends. Thanks for listening and we'll see you all next week. Lawrence Delalio's Rugby Podcast, supported by Fuller's London Pride, the official beer of Premiership Rugby. Hi, I'm Lawrence Delalio, and this episode of the Evening Standard Rugby Podcast is brought to you in partnership with QBE Business Insurance. QBE is one of the world's leading insurers, and they will help your business build resilience through risk management and insurance solutions. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.